This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Nutshell Politics, the podcast that all of your friends are raving about lately, or at least they should be. My name is Justin Kinney, and I'll be your host today. Now, instead of doing a current event this week, I thought we'd do something a little bit different and do a profile episode. So in a profile episode, I like to take a specific group or organization or people group or country and look at them a little bit more in depth. And because one of my favorite topics to talk about is terrorism, I thought I'd do a terrorist group for you guys today. And actually, I'm going to do three because we're going to be talking about ancient terrorist groups. We're going to be doing the Sikari, the Hashashin, and the Tugis. Now, if you listen to my History of Terrorism podcast episode, I don't know, a month or two ago, I actually did talk about all three of these groups in brief. I think we covered all three of them in like a span of five minutes. So today we're going to be doing a little bit more in-depth on each of these three groups. So usually when you hear someone talk about terrorism, they're talking about what's called modern terrorism. And modern terrorism really began around the late 1800s with the anarchist wave of terror. So you had a lot of anarchist groups led by groups like the Narodnaya Vulya uh, and some others. And that's where we really see what we think of terrorism today beginning. But the truth is there have been groups that engaged in similar style attacks for centuries, actually millennia. And so we're going to be looking at a few of those kind of precursor groups that showed elements of terrorism long before what we tend to think of as modern terrorism ever arose. Now, in the modern sense, that probably means we would not consider these three groups to be traditional terrorist groups today, but they did show elements and facets, whether it's their style of attack or their targets or whatever, that cause us to consider them to be precursor groups. So we're going to start and kick things off with one of the very earliest forms of terrorism. This was one of the early organized assassination groups. It was a unit of cloak and daggers, predates even the Japanese ninjas by centuries. We tend to think of the ninjas as being one of these ancient groups, but but really this group actually predated them by centuries. It's called the Sikari. So this is S-I-C-A-R-I-I. Now this is a splinter group of the Jewish zealots. Now, if you're a biblical scholar, you are familiar with the Zealots. You've heard of Simon the Zealot. He was one of Jesus' apostles. Now, the Zealots were a political movement during the first century in Judea, which were very focused on the idea of ousting the Romans or ending Roman rule in the area. And frequently, you'll hear the Zealots talked about as being the fourth philosophy in the area or the, the fourth Jewish sect, the first three being the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. You may have heard of them as well, again, if you've read uh, any sort of biblical literature. The Zealots are considered this kind of fourth sect. They're much less religious and more political than the other three, but there is a, a religious element to them. And Simon, Simon the Zealot, is one of the apostles, is probably the most famous member of this. Now, the Zealots themselves were not considered to be particularly violent. Uh, now, there were certainly violent sects of them. Uh, there were certainly revolts. And the Zealots actually held a pretty leading role during one of the, the wars at this time period, the, the Jewish-Roman War. I think it's called the First Jewish-Roman War, which took place in 66 to 73 uh, CE. Now, there was this kind of violent offshoot of them, kind of a, a twisted sect, 
particularly extremist group that is seen as, at least today, as being a subgroup of the Zealots, and that's the Sicarii. Now, there is some disagreement about that. I'll go ahead and throw that out there. It's whether or not they were closely tied to the Zealots or not. It's generally thought they are considered to be a, a radicalist, extremist sub-movement of them. Now, the word Sicarii is the plural form of a Latin word, Sicarius, and it means daggermen or dagger wielder. And so this comes from what their traditional mode of attack was using small daggers. Now, we do see the word Sicarius in kind of later Latin usage become known as the, the standard word for murderer as well. So you can see that carried through the years. And even today, if you're in, say, a Spanish country, you've probably heard the word Sicario, meaning uh, kind of a salaried hitman or an assassin of sorts. And in Italy, you hear the same thing. It means a commissioned murderer, Sicario. Uh, you also hear the word in Portuguese. And so this word has carried through today to have meanings in multiple different languages, all centered around this idea of assassination. So they get their name from the word Daggerman, and it's because they carried what are called Sicae. Sike, which are small daggers. They concealed them in their cloaks. And the idea here is they would hide these daggers inside their clothing, and then they would sneak up into public gatherings, pull out their daggers to attack their target, and then hide it back in their cloak and blend right back into the cloud after they were done to escape any sort of detection. Now, their targets here were mostly what you would consider the Jewish notables, members of the priesthood, anyone they considered to be apostate or collaborators with Rome. They went after Roman soldiers. And there's actually some historical documentation from the famed historian Josephus, who claims that the Sicarii also um, was involved in raiding villages. So most of these attacks, though, were not targeted specifically individual people you know, because they hated this person. It was more symbolic. And they were mostly trying to do things to instigate war against the Romans. And so they would commit these atrocities, kill people in order to kind of force the population out of their kind of peaceful nature and incite a war against Rome so that they could oust the Romans. So on one case, this is given in the Talmud, they actually went after a city and destroyed the food supply of the city so that the people of that city would be forced to fight against the Roman siege instead of trying to negotiate peace because they didn't have any food anymore. So they had, they had to fight. And so they did things like that that were mostly designed to incite the people against their, their Roman overlords that they, they saw. Now, the Sicarii were led by a few different people, the most prominent of which were two men, one named Menahem ben Yehuda and the other being Eleazar ben Jair. Now, they were very well known in the area. They had led uh, some of their followers in attacks on Roman soldiers. They were uh, very important figures during the First Roman-Jewish War as well. Now, while the Sicarii had been around for probably a couple decades prior to this First Jewish-Roman War, this is where they probably are most famous. They were key members of this uh, rebel alliance that, that took place here. There were quite a few different rebel groups. The Sicarii were just one of, of many. But the Sicarii, under those two leaders, Manahem and Eleazar, they participated in this rebellion against Rome. Now, they originally, they started by capturing the ancient fortress of Masada. If you're familiar at all with any sort of Jewish history, you're familiar with the story of Masada, and we'll get to that in a second. But they actually captured this ancient fortress. It's a big fortress kind of up on this high, high hill, which is actually really hard to capture. But they managed to capture it, plundered the armory, and then they continued marching towards Jerusalem. Now, initially, they actually did succeed 
in liberating Jerusalem from the Romans. And they actually took control of the temple there. They did this in about 66 AD or CE. And they managed to oust the Romans. So for a brief period in time, they were successful. But there were some problems. Uh, one of their leaders, Manahem ben Yehuda, really intended to try to make himself the leader of the whole rebellion, not just the Sakari. He wanted to take control over all the rebel forces and wanted to actually have himself crowned as kind of like the Messiah king of the people in the temple. The other rebels didn't like this. They were actually pretty mad about this. And the Sakari get attacked by the rest of the rebels. And so Manahem is eventually defeated. He is captured, he's tortured, and then executed along with many of his followers by these other rebels. Now, the surviving Sakari, which were led by Eliezer Ben-Jair, he's uh, actually, a, the two of them are relatives, I think they were like cousins or something to that effect. They flee Jerusalem, go back to Masada, which they still controlled, and that becomes their fortress for the rest of this uh, Jewish-Roman war. Now, the Sakari themselves don't participate in the rebellion very much beyond this point. They mostly focus their military actions near the fortress involving raiding villages. But when the Romans return to Jerusalem in AD 70, they destroy, actually end up destroying the city of Jerusalem. They wipe out the rest of the rebels. And so once the Romans have control of Jerusalem and it's pretty much wiped to the ground, they start marching towards Masada where the last of the Sicarii remain as well as a handful of other rebels. So this is like the last stronghold held by the Jewish rebels during this overall revolt period of like seven years or so. And so in AD 73, the Romans besiege the fortress. They attack Masada. And the the story goes, so Masada is quite famous, if you're familiar with this at all. Masada is famous because when they realized that all was lost and the Romans were going to overwhelm them, probably slaughter them, execute them, take their women and, ch and children as slaves, the leaders at this point, which were led by Eleazar, convinced all the other members of the fortress, including their families, to commit kind of ritualistic suicide altogether. And so when the Romans do eventually enter the fortress, they find that all of the Jews in the fortress, men, women, and children, had killed themselves, mostly uh, through the sword. Uh, there, I think there were a few exceptions. I think there were a couple women who survived and like five kids but mostly this was a, a mass suicide at Masada because this was the last stronghold of the Jewish rebels against the Roman rule. And so it's thought then that the Sicarii were effectively wiped out during this time period at this specific battle. Now you can actually go visit Masada today. I was actually there three or four years ago. It's a fascinating place. You can see it's this big, huge fortress up on a hill and they can explain to you like how somebody was able to capture it, how the Romans came and built ramps up to the side of it. It's a really fascinating little bit of history and it's it's famous in, in Jewish culture because of the, you know, the bravery of the people there standing up against the Romans, the last remaining stronghold. But it's also kind of a fascinating little piece of history to go and see how it was set up and, and where it is. It's, it's way out in the middle of the desert, up on this really high hill that's you know on all sides, very, very steep, hard to get to. And as you're walking around this ancient fortress that's in ruins now, you hear the story of, of these people who thought all was lost and rather than be taken as prisoners of war you know, into slavery by the Romans, they, they thought it was much more honorable to kill themselves. It's a tragic story, very sad, but it's it's a very meaningful story in Jewish history. And the Sicarii played a pretty big role in that as being some of the last leaders of the fortress of Masada. And this is where we see them ultimately get wiped out as well. 
So that's the Sakari. Now, as I mentioned, the Sakari are not what we would typically consider a terrorist group today, but they show a lot of similar elements in their attack styles and the way that they are intending to incite uh, revolt. So there's a lot more of a symbolic nature to them. But that's really all we know about them. It's, again, it's a group for 2,000 years ago. Not a whole lot of details there. But that leads us to the second group I wanted to talk about today. And this is a group called the Hashashin. Now, this is a, a religious order, a kind of an extremist religious faction branch off of Shia Islam. They're called the Nizari Ismailis. That's their original name. They eventually get called the Order of the Hashashin or the Order of the Assassins. Now, that name probably sounds a little bit familiar. Hashashin is the precursor word to where we get our word assassin from. Hashashin, assassin, assassin, assassins. So the assassins or the assassin uh, were this religious sect that took place around the year 1100 AD. Uh, and they lasted for about 200 years, give or take. And they were mostly a group of assassins, as their name would suggest, that lived up in the mountain fortresses throughout the area of Persia, which is now modern-day Iraq, and uh, also later a little bit into where we think of Syria being. So this is a group that is often characterized as being a very secretive order. There's actually very little information about them overall, and they're led by what their writings call the old man of the mountain, which you're not really sure what that means. But it, again, they're in these mountain fortresses in Persia and Syria. Uh, they have a famous fortress called Alamut. You may have actually heard of that one uh, in, in Iran as well. But they lived in these mountain fortresses kind of acting as a almost like a pseudo state or a community or secret society. Now, their name is kind of interesting, the Hashashin. There's some disagreement about where this name came from. There's some people who think it's just an ancient word that means outlaw. Uh, others say it's a misunderstanding of a different word, which just means you know foundation, uh, followers of the foundation of the faith. But the most popular explanation for the name is that it derives from the word hashish, which is, you probably heard of that, that's the drug hashish. And it's thought that the Hashashin used the drug as a method of recruitment, initiation. They used it in like brainwashing and hypnosis to get people radicalized. Or potentially that they used it before going into battle. So they were in kind of a different state of mind going in. So that's kind of probably the most popular explanation for where the name came from. Not really 100% sure on that though. But essentially these Hashashin were suicide assassins. And this is the first time we really see suicide attacks take place. Now you may be asking, well, what, how do you cl clarify a suicide attack before you have bombs and these type of things? But essentially what they would do, not every time because they needed recruits, but a lot of times they would send a single lone assassin to kill an enemy leader. They would sneak in, do it, and then they would wait by the body to be killed or captured. And it was seen as inspiring this kind of fearful awe among their enemies because they're not afraid of being caught. In fact, they want to be caught. They want to be known for what they did. And so it was kind of uh, a little bit of a fearfulness about them because they were so fearless. And so they often did this through disguise, careful inf infiltration that lasted years. I mean, there's stories of the Hashashin who would infiltrate their enemy camps, become an advisor or a servant, and work their way up the ranks over years to get close enough to the leader. Then they would kill the leader and then wait by their, their bedside or whatever to, to be discovered, and they would be captured or killed at that point. So very interesting methods here. Their targets were mostly uh, against the Siljuk Turks. This is a 
another group, an ethnic group in the area, because they felt the Seljuk Turks had been persecuting them. They also went after Sunni Muslims. Again, they saw themselves as being kind of an offshoot of the Shias. So they went after Sunnis. Sunnis and Shias have fought frequently against each other. So the this Nazari Ismaili branch, the Ashashins, were seen as a threat to the Sunni authorities. And they also went after some of the Christian Crusaders. They lived during the time of the Crusades. And so they attacked some of the Crusaders. That said, uh, there are some stories that they actually allied with the Crusaders on a couple occasions because they had the common enemy of the Caliphate. So they were against the Sunni Caliphate at the time. Now, because of their method of attack of being these kind of single assassins go in and kill the one leader, infiltration through years, they tend to have very, very few extra casualties. Then uh, they killed him in public frequently. You know, so there are witnesses. Again, they wanted to be seen, wanted to be caught, and frequently with with a dagger. So they also were known for engaging in kind of a psychological warfare, which is where we kind of see some of these elements of modern day terrorism, where there's a symbolic element to it. For instance, there's a big uh, famous rumor that they did this to the Sultan and the Muslim military commander Saladin. You may have heard of him. I think he actually popped up in those civilization computer games that were so popular a while back. I think they're still around. Um, but Saladin is this very, very famous, probably the most famous Muslim military commander. And so what they did is they snuck in while he was sleeping in his own bed and they left a dagger on his pillow. And the idea here is they wanted to, to symbolize and to show him just how unsafe he was, that they could get to him even despite all of his security around him. And so what the purpose here was they wanted to convince him, hey, we can get to you no matter what, so you might as well form an alliance with us. And Saladin promptly did. So he actually formed a, a truce or a negotiated truce with this group of Hashashin. Now, because they were so secretive and kind of they lived up in these mountain fortresses, they were a relatively small group. At their absolute max, it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 men. But despite this, they were actually fairly successful. They, as I said, got to Saladin. They killed quite a few other uh, military leaders, religious leaders, um, the, the Seljuk Turks, that ethnic branch in the area. They also, uh, the rumor is that they went after uh, Jagati Khan. Now, Jagati Khan, the name probably sounds a little bit familiar. He is the son of the more famous Genghis Khan. And so he actually ruled some territories in this area, kind of to the north and to the east of where the Hashashin sect was. And he controlled a lot of territory where some of their ethnic and religious brethren were. And he had angered the Hashashin by forbidding certain religious rituals, specifically ones around the idea of prayer. And so they went after and they apparently killed Jagati Khan. Now, this is probably where they overstepped a little bit. They... By killing the son of Genghis Khan, they angered the Mongols. Now, again, if you're familiar with the Mongols, angering them was probably not a great thing for them to do. And so Genghis Khan's grandson, a guy by the name of Monke Khan, he came through a handful of years later in kind of the 1200s. I think it was in the neighborhood of like 1270. And they pretty much wiped out the Hashashin. So the Mongols come sweeping through this area and just utterly demolish the Hashashin. In the process, they all actually destroyed nearly all of the sect's writings, their own records. And so we actually have very little firsthand knowledge of them. Uh, so what we do know about the Hashashin comes from a handful of Arab historians from the area and uh, actually from Marco Polo as well. Because Marco Polo uh, visited the area in kind of the late 1200s, uh, just after the destruction of the Fortress of Alamut. 
And so a lot of the legends and things that we hear about them are come from these embellishments by Marco Polo. So it's really hard to really know a lot of detail about this particular group because their their actual records were destroyed and mostly we're dealing with second and third hand reports about them. Now, they have been memorialized, I guess, in modern times. We actually have seen them pop up. I don't know if any of my listeners out there have played the video game Assassin's Creed, but one of the main characters from, I think, the very first one was a guy by the name of Altair Ibn Lahad. I apologize for butchering that. Um, but he is actually supposed to be a kind of fictionalized version of a Hasashin. So we've seen that crop up even in modern times. They're kind of seen as legends from this time period. Now, because of this kind of legendary aspect to them, there's been a lot of stories that have cropped up that may or may not be true. For instance, getting back on this idea of using the drug hashish to uh, radicalize some of their members, one of the stories that we get from Marco Polo is that the Hashashin would drug their followers with hashish, and kind of when they were under the influence of it, this recruit would kind of wake up in a garden that was overflowing with food and wine and women. And, and this was used to kind of convince the recruits that their leader was a representative of, of the divinity who was giving them this vision. And so this, this vision then was used to say that, hey, our leader can take us to paradise. And so when the recruit would eventually kind of come back to their senses after the drug wore off, the leader would then claim he's the only one who has the, the ability to lead you back to this place of paradise. Right. And so his followers become devoted to him through this. Now, obviously, this is, as I said, kind of a legend. We're not really sure. It might be completely false. We don't know. Um, it might be more of a, a figurative story instead of one that's you know strictly based in fact. But we have a lot of these type of legends that have cropped up around them that have caused the Hashishin to be much more feared over time. They have this reputation of cold-blooded killers who engage in these psychological tactics to the point where even this massively famous military leader Saladin feared for his life actually became quite paranoid about it. But as I said, they were eventually wiped out. The Mongols swept through in the 1200s. Uh, they took out the original stronghold uh, in, I think, 1256. And even though the Hashashin did manage to take and hold Alamut back a few months in 1275, they were ultimately wiped out by the Mongols. Now, historically, this is a really big deal. The, the Mongol conquest of Alamut is very, very significant because this means that our understanding of who the Hashashin were is completely destroyed because we, we can't get it from their point of view. We only get it from the invaders or from Marco Polo, who I said was kind of right at the very end. So he didn't even have much of a firsthand knowledge of it. And we have this kind of legendary, almost romanticized view of this Hashashin religious sect. But as I said, they do show certain elements that are very tied into what we consider modern terrorism, even if we wouldn't necessarily consider them by the same strain that we have today, but they use psychological tactics. Uh, the assassinations. They didn't really go after civilians, so you don't have the mass casualties or the fear in the public like you would see in modern terrorism. But they did use this to some smaller extent on leaders. And as I said, they've become so famous, we actually saw them crop up in the Assassin's Creed game. But frankly, because of the destruction of their records, that's pretty much all we know about them. So that leads us to the third group I want to touch on today, and that's the group called the Tugis. Now, you've probably heard this word before, but may not recognize it with this pronunciation. It's actually spelled T-H-U-G-G-E-E, -G -G -E -E, but it's actually where we get our word thug from. 
T-H-U-G. So the Tugis are one of history's most notorious criminal cults. We tend to think of them as highway robbers almost. Their name, Tugi, comes from a Sanskrit word that essentially means to hide or to conceal. Now, the Tugis are kind of an interesting group because they did have some religious influence. Hinduism, they were followers of the goddess Kali, which is the goddess of death. But many were also Muslim, and there were several other faiths as well. History has kind of remembered them as a sort of religious group. In reality, though, these were more like uh, assassins across India, mostly across kind of the, the Indian subcontinent. But it was more or less a lot more similar to like a, a mafia-style family, like a fraternity or an organized um, criminal organization. It was hereditary, so membership got passed down from father to son. Uh, leadership was also hereditary as well. And it was almost seen more like a profession in certain areas. This, is, this was your job uh, to an extent. Now, it started roughly in the 1300s and it continued for about 500 years. So it's one of the longer lasting groups. And their method of attack was a little bit unique to them. They would join up with bands of travelers who were traveling across uh, this Indian subcontinent, sometimes hundreds of miles long. Uh, and the Tugis would join them in various stages to, to allay any, any sort of suspicion that they were together. So they would join at different times and then they would gain their confidence along the route. And so they would stick with them for miles, like I said, up to hundreds of miles. Then at a certain point, they would kill, rob, and bury their victims along the side of the road, take the money. Sometimes they would spare the youngest children and kind of raise them, groom them to be members of the group themselves one day. But they would kind of do this repeatedly, and this is how they made money. And so they were noted for, in particular, one method of killing, which was strangulation using a garrot. Uh, now, a garrot is, uh, frequently it's like the piano wire where you wrap it around someone's neck and strangle them. But at the time, they would use like a scarf or some other type of cloth material uh, to strangle their victims. Now, because this group was kind of so spread out, again, hun crossing hundreds of miles over you know centuries, the death counts can be highly variable, so you'll still see death counts ranging anywhere from like 50,000 total to over 2 million. But regardless of where you kind of fall on that spectrum, it is no doubt that the Tugis were quite effective in their methods. And even the methods themselves were down to like an art or a science. It was very rigid, uh, the whole like displaying a false friendship and gaining trust along the way, the murder, even the burial of the victims was prescribed on a very rigid a set of rules of how they had to go about this. It was a very rigid process. And the organization itself was quite hierarchical too. If you had any members of the organization, a Tug who was too old or too sick to actually do the whole travel and ritual, uh, murder, robbing, and killing, they would serve as guides or spies or provide supplies or whatever. So the, the organization itself was, was quite extensive. And it really wasn't until the British come along, the British rule, in kind of the mid to late 1800s that we see the Tugs really get challenged. And uh, this the British rule essentially comes through a man by the name of uh, Sir William Henry Sleeman. He was uh, part of the British authority and he began a campaign to try to eliminate the practice of, of the Tugis as well as a couple other criminal organizations in the area. And so he began uh, operating against them, trying to profile using intelligence, uh, punishing the ones he caught. And eventually what happened is they managed to flip a handful of the, the Tugis and really opened up the, the secrecy of this. It, the organization was thought to be so secret that even sometimes the wives and other women in these men's lives didn't really know what, what was going on. 
but uh, once they managed to flip a couple of the, the Tugis, they managed to kind of expose the whole organization for what it was. And eventually uh, the British helped take down the entire organization and the Tugis were fully abolished in kind of the mid to late 1800s. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the religious side of this uh, Indian criminal organization is kind of unusual. Uh, as I said, a lot of people tend to believe they're kind of a religious cult of sort, and there definitely were some elements of that. Uh, a lot of them did worship the Hindu goddess Kali. There was some evidence of human sacrifice that was involved, but it was not uniform across the whole organization. There were other religions involved, and they had a lot more motivation on kind of an economic front as well. So it wasn't entirely religious, although there were certainly some sects within it that took the religious side much more seriously than others. And actually, we, we see this get depicted in modern culture, like the Hashashin popped up in Assassin's Creed. We saw the Tugis pop up in a famous Indiana Jones film. I don't know if anybody, any of my listeners have seen the Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, but in this, you actually see the Tugis get depicted. They are the religious cult that you see with practicing the human sacrifice in the cave where the guy reaches his hand into the person's chest and pulls out his heart. You also see the Tugi uh, assassin in Indiana Jones's hotel room. I don't know if you remember the scene, but he walks in the hotel room and somebody tries to strangle him from behind with a scarf and they fight and eventually the guy's scarf gets caught in the ceiling fan and he kind of strangles himself. But that is supposed to be a depiction, a very fictionalized depiction of the Tugis who used garrots and who practiced human sacrifice on certain occasions as well. So this cult we have seen pop up, obviously in Temple of Doom, it was fictionalized. And so there's you know, only so much of that that can be taken as, as truth. But it is one of the few times that we have seen this group depicted on film in some sort of big mainstream modern uh, movie. And so we do see some of this influence that they've had carry over to today. And as I mentioned too, this is where we get our word today, thug, from. It uh, traces its roots to kind of the same Hindi and Sanskrit words, uh, which comes from, you know, means thief or to conceal or to hide. Now, the Tugis were quite large. Uh, nearly 4,000 of them were ultimately uh, discovered and, and captured. About 2,000 ended up being convicted, but it's thought there were quite a few more, especially considering this lasted centuries, that that number is thought to be quite large uh, once you add it all up. Again, that's 4,000 at one point in time. So there's probably a lot, lot more over the years. And their victim count is also quite large too. As I mentioned, it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 minimum which puts it as the most deadly organized cult that has ever existed that we know of. And even on the individual level too, there's you know certain members who were caught and admitted to killing upwards of you know, hundreds to almost a thousand. I think there was one man who had been doing this for 40 years and he claimed to have the highest death count at around 930. But as I said, this group was eliminated in the mid to late 1800s by the British rule under William Sleeman, who was an officer who kind of set about destroying this organization as one of his main tasks and did succeed in doing so. So that leads us to the end of today's episode. Those are three ancient terrorist groups or precursor groups to modern terrorism. They showed certain elements of terrorism, even if we wouldn't necessarily count them as, as such today. I think they're very fascinating groups, though, because it's where we really start to see some of these elements creep up. And then as we get to another profile episode at some point down the road, we see modern terrorism kick off in kind of the late 1800s. So it kind of leads from the Tugis right into some of these anarchist groups that crop up in around the 1880s. But with that, we're going to go ahead and close things out. I appreciate you guys tuning in and listening. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. Please follow me there. 
send me a message. Love to continue the conversation with you. You can also find me on Facebook at J. Robert Kinney. That's my fiction novel author name. I have a book, Precipice, which is out on Amazon. And I have a new book, which will be coming out this fall sometime, probably in the next month or so. And I would love for you guys to check that out as well. I'll let you know as soon as it gets released. If you're interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast, or advertising on the podcast, I would love to talk with you further about that. So please send me a message or check out my Patreon account. But with that, I think that's all the time we have. I look forward to talking with you guys next week. And I'm out in three, two, one. Yeah.